Hello, welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 61, and we traverse the width of South Africa to head back to the Free State after last week's episode where we followed the Canadians through the Eastern Transvaal. It's in the Free State where General Christian de Wet remains at large. His plan is to head south through the Free State and into the Cape, although he did consider Natal as an option as well. The Boers want to incite the Cape Afrikaners to rise up against the British by an insurgency they believed had a good chance of success. It was an idea General Jan Smuts had put to the gathered Boer leaders at a meeting in October 1900 at Seferfontein Farm, west of Johannesburg. But we also know that Christian de Wet distrusted many of his fellow commanders and would not support the first part of Smuts's plan, which was an audacious plot to send a combined commando unit to blow up Johannesburg gold mines before dispersing to launch invasions of both the Natal and Cape colonies. De Wet now was threatening towns to the south of the Free State capital, Bloemfontein, and the English were aware he was on the move. Still, that didn't stop the Boer general from his next mission, which was personal, and which took the English leadership off guard. By the second week of November, however, De Wet's units were tired. The horses of the burghers were in a very weak condition, he writes in his book Three Years' War. And as the Boer is only half a man without his horse, for he relies on it to get him out of any and every difficulty, I had now to advance and see if I could not find some means of providing my men with horses and saddles. Naturally, he sought assistance from Boers who owned farms nearby, although this placed his people in some danger as the British had begun their own campaign to defeat the insurgents, which included farm burnings and the destruction of Boer collaborator property. De Wet headed off in the direction of St. Refiersberg to the farm of Jacobus Bornmann. There, he divided his commander, ordering General Frunemann, his second-in-command, to lead the Frieda and Heilbronn units back across the railway lines between Duren River and Santerfeerd in order to continue operations in the north of the Free State. De Wet himself led the second division and was joined by Commandant Latachan of Colesburg and a company of 120 men, along with Commandant Jan Teron with 80 men. They headed south with a plan to invade the Cape Colony and bring the war back to where his people left on the Great Trek 70 years before. On the way across this landscape, he blew up the railway line and a few small bridges, then rode on to Duenbach, where he met Commandant Hasbrook and his burghers. De Wet was aware his commander was too small to really be a major threat as they entered the Cape, so he sent out word to General Philip Boerter, in charge of the Harry Smith and Kronstadt burghers, to join him, and they duly arrived near the famous landmark of Tabanchu on the border with Basutuland, that's modern-day Lesotho. 1,500 men gathered there, and De Wet led this division as they thundered across the felt in the direction of Springhans Neck, to the east of Tabanchu. Springhan means locust, and they must have appeared as a grey cloud of locusts, dust rising behind them and threatening to the British spies in the area. Commandant Hasbrook asked for permission to stop at Kranabach to wait for some of his men who were catching up. The vet agreed, but continued on his way, with most of the men taking the last Krip gun in his possession with a paltry 16 shells. By the afternoon of the 16th of November 1900, De Wet had arrived in Springhans Neck, where the English had built a series of reinforced defensive positions. He mused about his next steps. 
There were really only two scenarios if you take his overall plan into account. First, bypass these strong points and head onwards to the Cape, making haste. Second, attack, then continue south. He chose the latter course of action, however, this would have an impact on his overall mission, as we'll see. So at Springhans neck he took stock. The English had begun to build a series of forts between Bloemfontein and Tabanchu, then onwards to Ladybrand, which was southeast of the Free State capital. These forts were built in line of sight so they could monitor each other and facilitated a flow of messages should the telegraph cable be cut. They were around two kilometers apart. The two he was looking at had been built on rising land, one south, one north, and he could not move through the area without being spotted. So De Wett ordered the Krupp gunners to fire six shots at one of the forts and scored direct hits. Without waiting, he then led a charge directly at the northern fort and lost one man wounded, who appeared to be double unlucky. You see, it was Commandant Jan Mayer of Harrysmith, who'd been sitting in a cart, having been shot in the leg in a previous engagement. Now he was shot again. This time he took a bullet in the side. Still, he wasn't critically wounded, although in some pain both forts surrendered. De Wet set off again, and by the evening of the 17th November, his commando had arrived at the Moda Rafir, scene of so many deadly battles in the past year. He didn't stop to ponder a victory. He continued south, heading inexorably towards the Cape Colony border. On the 19th, he made a momentous decision as he approached a town that symbolized both his youth and the commitment of the Boers. Throughout the previous days, his unit had travelled at night to hide their movements, but suddenly he now decided to advance during the day, so that the British garrison at De Wetsdorp could observe him clearly. De Wetsdorp means De Wet's town. He explains, My object was to lead the garrison to think we did not want to attack them, but wished first to reconnoitre the positions. The British were indeed observant, and watched as De Wet's scouts rode about the felt. De Wet wanted the garrison to believe he was going to bypass their position and head on to Bloemfontein, actually to the north. We know he was going in the opposite direction, to the south, but he spent the last year of warfare reversing course and using tactics of smoke and mirrors to obfuscate his real intention continuously. The British obliged and sent a patrol to the north, trying to spot what they thought was De Wet moving towards the Free State capital. He writes, I was told that they said De Wet was either too wise or too frightened to attack De Wet's dorp, and if he did, he would only be running his head against the wall. It's ironic, is it not, that General Christian De Wet was actually planning to attack a town bearing his name, De Wet's dorp, or De Wet's town, which in fact was named after his father. De Wet Sr. was a hero of the Great Trek, so clearly this general wanted the English out of his father's house, so to speak. He had grown up around this town. He knew every inch of the ground. Yet, at this point, should he not be avoiding a clash and heading straight to the Cape to create chaos there? You may say that he acted purely out of emotional intent to rid his hometown of the enemy he hated so much. The large commander hid at the nearby farm of Rudeval, his old stomping ground, while the British telegraphed units in Bloemfontein, saying they should expect sign of the Boer commander soon. Instead, he was hiding a few miles away from De Wetstorp, lying low overnight of the 19th of November and most of the 20th, and 
was close to his father's town. In the late afternoon of the 20th, he mobilized his men, and under cover of darkness, they moved silently back towards the Bertstorp. He writes, By day or by night, I had been accustomed to ride freely in and out of the old town. Never before had I been forced to approach it, as I was now, like a thief. Was nothing on this earth then solid or lasting, to think that I must not enter the Bertstorp unless I were prepared to surrender to the English? I was not prepared to surrender to the English. So instead, he was going to break into the town by force of arms. First, he dispatched General Philip Boerter's unit of 120 men with two guides to a flat-topped hill to the southeast of the town. He knew that the English had thrown up two well-built defensive posts there, complete with gun forts. They were missing their guns, and he rued the loss of his artillery at Butterville in October. Taking the fort and then shelling the other British positions would have been ideal, he thought. He had only ten rounds left for his Krip gun. That wasn't enough to dislodge the British, no matter how accurate his gun is. Philip Butter was in luck, however, as David explains how the British were caught napping. They did not know how to guard their own forts. For when General Boerter arrived there, he found only three sentries, and they were fast asleep. Two of them escaped, leaving their clothes behind, but the third was killed. De Wett moved with the second unit to occupy a position to the north of the town, which meant he could enfilade De Wett's Dorp from a range of around one and a half kilometers with his Mauses. Another commander under Commandant Latachan was stationed on a hill to the west. All was set for the showdown. But the British still held the high ground in two other places, which worried the Boer commander. In the first place, a fortified position of boulders and stones called a skanza was defended on a ridge to the southwest and threatened Commandant Latachan. Another, which featured trenches as well as sandbags, lay to the northwest. Both these had well-designed spaces for riflemen to lie and pick off men moving below them on the felt. De Wett knew the British officer in command of the garrison in his father's town. Major Massey was in charge of the Gloucestershire Regiment, the Highland Light Infantry, and the Irish Rifles, 500 men in all. He knew too that they were up for a fight, and said, I have only to say that both commanding officer and men displayed the greatest valour. He was irritated, however. Commander Hasbrook and Prinsloo had still not arrived. Remember, he left them near Tabanchu to await the arrival of their men, and they had still not caught up. De Wett had managed to gather 900 men, though, and for once outnumbered his enemy by almost two to one. Before attacking, he once more secured his escape route and roads, which may be used by British reinforcements from Bloemfontein. So he sent a patrol north towards the capital and another northeast to Tabanchu. President Stain, too, was also nearby at a farm called Prospect, and De Wett dispatched another small unit there to protect this asset. This meant when he began his attack on the next day, the 22nd November, he had reduced the size of his force to 450 men. The burghers had crept up to the two skanzas, or defensive fortifications, during the previous day, and de Wett had watched through his telescope, impressed by the men's courage. On the morning of the 22nd, though, the British opened fire, but the Boers continued creeping forward from rock to rock, and on their stomachs in what we know is called leopard crawling. You literally slither along the ground like a lizard, leaving virtually nothing to hit from a distance. A group of Boers had advanced to within 100 metres of the first skanza, and De Wett continued to watch, and writes, 
I saw one of our men creeping on till he was close under the enemy's fort. Directly afterwards, I observed that the rifles were being handed over the Skanza to this man. The English in the fort had surrendered, and even the hardy Boer commander was duly impressed. Later on, it appeared that the man who had done this valiant deed was none other than Feltcornet Vessels of Harry Smith. He was subsequently promoted to rank of Commandant to take the place of Commandant Truta. Later on again, he became Vice Commander in Chief. So De Vett's men had seized the fort, but moments later, the British, who realized it had fallen, opened fire with their artillery to the west of De Vettstorp. Undeterred, he ordered his men to immediately attack the second fort, and again Commandant Vessels led 25 men straight towards this defensive position. The English in the second fort abandoned their posts and ran back down the hill to the town, unseen by the Boers. Vessels, you see, was lying behind a rock, while De Vett and the others could not see behind the rise. So for an hour, as the English artillery kept up a constant barrage, the second Skanza remained empty of both Boer and Brit. The sun was beginning to set when General Philip Butter rushed up to Feltquinet Vessels, who was still behind his rock, and told him the English had left the Skanza. Columns of black smoke then began to pour out of the mill to the south of De Vettstorp, and it dawned on the Boers that the British could be ready to surrender, and were destroying their supplies so that they wouldn't fall into Boer hands. Everyone was shouting, The English are burning their commissariat, they are going to surrender! But they weren't ready to lay down their arms just yet. The burning was a precaution should they be defeated, and men would still die in the fight for this symbolic town. It was now pitch dark, and the Boers and British hunkered down for the night. Under cover of darkness, Commandant de Foss was ordered to another fort to the north, which was the best defended. De Vett knew that should this fort fall, the enemy's will would be broken. So de Vos crept stealthily up to the fort, and was not seen until he popped his head over the side of the sandbags. The English opened fire, killing two of his men, but the Boers leapt over the side of the trench and subdued the defenders in vicious hand-to-hand fighting. Six English died there, eight were wounded, thirty taken prisoner. The citizens of De Vettstorp, meanwhile, had taken shelter in a ravine to the north close to the town, and in the morning of the 22nd, De Vett and some of his men rode there, along with Falconet vessels, the Skanza attacking hero. The citizens emerged and returned to their houses. It was a homecoming of sorts, but in a strange environment. Many of the elders knew De Vett as a young cub, roaming the felt and visiting the town to buy supplies, attending school and church, and there was much emotion. De Vett continued into the town, while the British, in well-defended scanzas on the high ground, watched. They hadn't all surrendered just yet. De Vett writes, After I had visited three houses, those of the schoolmaster Mr. Otto, of Mr. Jacobus Roos, and of old Mr. H. van der Skaif, and had partaken in each of a cup of coffee, I hurried off to my burgers. This may sound like dereliction of duty, but the town had fallen, and it was a matter of mopping up. The British continued defending the remaining scunzers stubbornly for 24 hours, and finally, on the afternoon of 23rd November, the white flags all went up. This may have been a victory in the middle of a guerrilla campaign, but for De Vett, it must have been sweet. His own father's town now back in the hands of the Boers, and he savoured the moment. He knew, though, that it was a fleeting victory. The English surely would be on their way from Bloemfontein in the north, and he'd have to withdraw. 
but for the moment, amassed before him were 408 British prisoners, including Major Massey and seven officers. Fifty black workers were also imprisoned. The Boers had seized two Armstrong guns with 300 rounds of ammunition, along with a huge quantity of Lee Metford cartridges. There were close to 100 British casualties dead and wounded, while the Boers lost seven dead, 14 wounded. As with most battles, soldiers do not necessarily celebrate victory loudly immediately after, with the bodies of their comrades placed in the earth nearby. De Vett's scouts to the north then arrived and reported the inevitable British reinforcement column was close by. So, on the 24th of November, he decided he would not fight for control of his father's town against this much larger military force and turned his attentions once more to the matter of invading the Cape. The Boer commando saddled up and continued south. While this was going on, on the 22nd of November, Transvaal President Paul Kruger had arrived in the southern French port city of Marseille to begin his formal exile, little knowing he would never return to Africa. Remember, Oum Paul had left the Transvaal by rail on the 11th of September, weeping as his train crossed into Portuguese East Africa, or what is now Mozambique, as Lord Roberts's army approached. He planned to board the first outgoing steamer belonging to the German East Africa line, but the local British diplomats in Delagoa Bay put a stop to that idea. While Portugal had remained neutral during the Anglo-Boer War, Britain was still the superpower of the day. A month later, Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands met British representatives in Holland and they concluded a deal which allowed Kruger to board a Dutch warship, Gelderland, and transport him to Marseille from Delagoa Bay. But... Paul Kruger's wife, Gesine, would have to remain in Pretoria, and as we know, they never saw each other again. Kruger too was going deaf and was clearly not well. He was into his 70s after all, but he received a rapturous welcome in Marseille on the 22nd November. 60,000 people turned out to see him disembark. Journalists from all over the world had gathered, and the story of his arrival sped around the globe. Kruger went on to what was called an exuberant reception in Paris, then on to Cologne in Germany by the 1st of December. There the rapture ended, with Kaiser Wilhelm II refusing to receive him in Berlin. Kruger was shocked and said, The Kaiser has betrayed us. It was even more confusing because the Boers had been using German weapons, in particular Krupp's guns and Mauser rifles, to kill British soldiers, so he naturally presumed the Kaiser was an ally. Kruger then travelled on to the Netherlands. The former president was depicted in the press there as the embodiment of the suffering of his people who had fallen victim to the British hunger for gold and power. Kruger, who was forced to leave the country he himself had helped to build during the Great Trek, pined away in exile. And as such, his presence in the Netherlands became a strong symbol in the pro-Boer campaign. I'll return to this tale in a future podcast. But right now we must end episode 61 and also remember to rate the podcast on iTunes if you can and message me through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>